So good to see everybody today and uh, see several new faces out there this morning too. Welcome. We hope that you will feel right at home here with us this morning worshiping the Lord. If it is your first time here, um, one thing we ask you to do, we're not going to embarrass you or call you out or anything like that or uh, I'm not going to call you in the middle of supper some evening, but um, uh, we do want to know who you are. Don't get around to getting to know everybody. So if you'll take that card on the pew rack in front of you and fill the back of that out, and then uh, after the service, there is an uh, information center, welcome center booth back here in the foyer. If you'll go and turn that in to the person working that, uh, they're going to give you something in return. And uh, it's just a way for us to, to be able to say we're glad that, that you're here and uh, we want to get to know you. If you have your Bibles with you, turn once again to Philippians chapter 1. Last week we began looking at a text in here, verses 27 through 30, but we only got through verse 28. And so today we're going to look at the, the last two verses here, 29 and 30, but... Uh, the, our main focus is going to be on verse 29. If you would stand with me this morning as we receive the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Philippians 1.29, Paul writes, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for... Lord, just your presence here with us this morning. Uh, God, just thank you for blessing us in that way and for just gracing us, Lord, with your, uh, your love, your grace. Um, God, I pray that as we gaze upon your truth and your word this morning that, Lord, as I've been praying all morning, that something would just click for us, God, that we see you for who you are, that we leave here knowing you a little more than we did, than we do even right now. So, God, I pray that your truth will transform our hearts and renew our minds, that you may be glorified more in everything that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This text today, primarily verse 29, is going to force us to take a close look at something that many of us would just rather not acknowledge this is one of those difficult truths of God's Word that uh, we'd rather just skip right over when we're reading along and uh, hopefully find something more pleasant to land on and, and talk about. It's one of those things that some have uh, tried to explain away as meaning something other than what the words actually say, but you can't do that, especially with anything that Paul wrote because Paul was not one to uh, beat around the bush in anything that he wrote. I mean, it, it, he meant whatever he, he wrote down. He, he comes right out and says what he means, even if those things he knows are going to be hard for his readers to take. And what he says here in verse 29 could not be any clearer. He names two things that are given to us by God. Salvation and suffering. He says, for to you it has been granted. 
Now the word that he used there in the Greek that we translate into granted is the word charizomai, which literally means to give graciously, freely, bestow. It's the same word that was used in Luke 7.21 where it's talking about Jesus and it says that he gave charizomai sight to many who were blind. It's the same word used in Romans 8.32 that says, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us charizomai all things? Same word in 1 Corinthians 2.12, We have been given the Spirit from God. So that we may know the things that are freely given to us by God. And so Paul says, for to you it has been graciously given for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. I want to compare those two things so that you will really feel the weight of what Paul is saying here. Philippians 1.29 is one of the strongest evidences we have in Scripture on the absolute sovereignty of God over all affairs of life. There is a lot of doctrine in this one statement that Paul makes here. First, he says that your belief in Jesus is a gracious gift. This echoes something that you've heard me say several times, and that is that salvation is all God's doing. We take, play no part in our initial salvation. It is all God's doing. The belief that Jesus is the only way to be made right with God is not something that you came up with or figured out on your own. It wasn't like you had two options to weigh, and so you listed the pros and cons of each one and then made a rational decision based on your own intellect and wisdom. You couldn't have done that because you're con- in your condition apart from Christ, you were incapable of doing that. Why do I say that? Because the Bible tells us that apart from Christ, we have hearts that are absolutely darkened. It says that we are deaf to God's voice and his call, that we are blind to his truth and reality, that we are spiritually dead. This is what is referred to as the absolute depravity of man and is the condition that every one of us come into this world with. We are so lost and so wicked and so enslaved to sin and so bound in lies that we are incapable of recognizing truth. Being spiritually dead to God means exactly that. It doesn't mean spiritually asleep. It doesn't mean mostly enslaved to sin but still capable of some good. It doesn't mean just kind of dead but just capable enough to hear God's voice or to see his truth. No, it means completely dead, unable to do anything. Something dead cannot see, it cannot hear, and it cannot reason and distinguish between two options because it is dead. If you are spiritually dead, then the only way for you to come spiritually alive is for someone to miraculously bring you to life. 
If you are dead, then God has to be the one to open your ears to hear his voice, to open your eyes to see his truth and the reality of who he is and your own condition in light of him. And so if you are saved, that only came about because a gracious God had mercy on you and acted on your behalf and did for you what you were totally incapable of doing yourself. There is not one tiny thing that any of us can take credit for when it comes to our salvation. It wasn't because you walked down an aisle one Sunday or at a revival. It wasn't because you repeated the sinner's prayer after someone or because you were baptized in water. Those things were just the responses to what God has already initiated. Ephesians 2.5 says that when we were dead in our sin, he made us alive together. He made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians 2.8, by grace you have been saved, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. Colossians 1.13, he rescued us from the domain of darkness. I've heard salvation described sometimes with analogy that that goes like this. It says, salvation is like you are out in the middle of an ocean all by yourself. You have fallen overboard off of a boat, and they are long gone, and you're floating out there all by yourself just trying to survive. All of a sudden, this boat comes along and sees you, and someone throws out a life preserver beside you. And so now you have the choice whether or not you're going to reach out and grab that life preserver, or you're going to reject it and eventually drown. But that analogy does not line up with Scripture. A better analogy would be that your feet were completely encased in a giant block of concrete and you sank all the way to the very bottom of the ocean, unable to do anything about it. But God miraculously freed your feet, pulled you up out of that water, and set you on dry ground. Every bit of it was his doing. It had to be. You were spiritually dead. And why is it important for us to understand that about salvation? Because it produces in us the very thing that God desires. Our humility and his glory. It produces worship and gratitude and thankfulness and praise Our only response to that, to what God has done for our salvation, can be, thank you, thank you, thank you. Last night we were watching the movie um, World Trade Center. Nicolas Cage is in it about the, the two Port Authority police officers that were buried under the rubble of the World Trade Center and uh, were eventually rescued. They were down there 20, 30, 40 feet down in all this rubble with concrete and metal crushing them. They couldn't lift anything. They were severely injured. I mean, so close to death many times. Finally, someone figured out that they were down there. 
What good would it have done if he would have dropped a rope down there and said, here, grab this rope and I'll pull you up? They couldn't have. They weren't able to do anything. They needed somebody to come down there and free them from what they were trapped in and pull them up out of that rubble. And so they did. And when I saw this one scene, it it just totally hit me about how that is such a picture of salvation. Nicolas Cage, he was the last one pulled out because he was the deepest down there. And he was the closest one to death. And so they pulled him out. And and there was this line of first responders that made this huge line. They were shoulder to shoulder from the hole that he was pulled out of all the way down to the waiting ambulance. And so they had him on this stretcher, and they were passing him along. And as they were passing him down this line, all he could say was, thank you, thank you, thank you, to every single one of them that he passed by. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Because they did for him what he was completely incapable of doing himself. And that's exactly what God did for you. And so would you say then that that shows that God is loving and gracious and merciful and forgiving and good? Of course it does. For to you it has been granted, it has been graciously given for you to believe in him. What a gift. And so Paul uses that to describe God's hand in suffering. He equates that incredible, gracious, undeserved gift with suffering that we encounter in life. As much as your salvation doesn't have anything to do with you, but is a gift from God's sovereign hand, so is the suffering that you encounter in life. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now I know this is a hard truth for many to accept. And there are a couple reasons why we find that so hard to really wrap our minds around. For one, man has historically been desperate to determine the why behind any suffering. We want to analyze and categorize events into nice, neat designations of cause and effect. In other words, we desperately want to know this happened because and fill in the blank. And I think the reason why we try to do that so much is because we probably think that if we can figure that out, then we can manipulate and control and avoid an undesirable effect if we can just control and avoid the cause. If the suffering happened because of blank, then all I have to do is avoid blank. If I do this, God will do this. That old covenant mentality that I've talked about several times. Turn to the gospel of John chapter 9 for a minute. This was precisely the thinking of Jesus' disciples 
when they encountered a blind man. John 9, starting in verse 1, it says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? The suffering this man endured was his blindness. And so it was naturally assumed that there was a reason for that. that there must be a, a cause here that sin had to be what caused it. But whose sin? Was it his? His own sin? His parents? His grandparents? Who did it? Because obviously someone did something wrong in order for this to happen. Somebody was being punished here because things just aren't bad things just aren't supposed to happen to good people right but notice Jesus's response verse 3 Jesus answered it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him this man was born blind so that God would be glorified can you feel the weight of that? For decades, this man suffered. And he missed out on a lot of things that most people were able to enjoy so that this exact moment could happen where Jesus would display his mercy and magnify his grace. We see the same attitude and assumption about suffering in the story of Job. Job was a very godly man who suffered the loss of all of his children and all of his possessions in one day. And then just to add to his misery, his skin broke out in painful boils all over his body. Job went through some of the most intense suffering imaginable, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. His friends were convinced that they knew exactly what was going on, that his suffering had to be because of his own transgression. There must be some sin in his life that he is now paying the consequences for. And so they implored him, Job, man, just admit your sin, repent, and be restored. If you do this, then God will do this. When you're reading that story after hearing the input of all his friends and their opinions on the matter and even his wife's who told him to just curse God and die, we finally get to hear from God. And how does he answer the question as to why all this suffering was going on in Job's life? Well, rather than saying, you see, Job, this is exactly why this is happening, for four chapters... Job 38 through 41, all God does is speak of his sovereignty and power and creativity and wisdom. He says not one thing that would fit nicely into our precise cause and effect categories. Not one thing. Another reason we find it hard to accept the fact that God has a hand in our suffering, suffering is because, in our mind at least, it, it doesn't line up with the fact that God is good and that he is loving. 
a good God, a loving God, would not allow his children to suffer, is what we assume. And so if he allows it, then that would mean that he's really not that good after all. Apparently, there's got to be some mean streak in him, some sadistic bent in him. If he actually purposely causes suffering to come on those he supposedly loves, but that kind of thinking and attitude simply comes from immaturity. It's just immaturity. And here's why I say that. You parents, whenever you discipline your children, how many times have you heard them thank you for that? If you're like me, never have. Still waiting on it, right? What you probably do here are things like, you don't love me, you hate me. My kids don't say that, I just heard them other ones, right? (laughs) But why do they? Why do kids say that? Because they're kids and they're immature. And they're incapable of seeing much farther beyond what's right there in front of them. What they're experiencing right there in that moment. Can't really see anything beyond that. Honesty and integrity are two big things that I try to instill the importance of in my children. And so if any of them are ever caught in a lie or hiding something or breaking our trust... There's going to be some pretty severe consequences for that because I want them to understand how big of a deal that is. And so we may ground them from many privileges. And there's been times where they have maybe looked forward to a special event that they were all excited about, but then something like this comes up and they find out that That's included in the things that they're grounded from. And they don't receive that very well. And I've tried to explain to them before, look, I really wish you could do this. But that falls on deaf ears. All they know in that moment, in that situation, is I'm just a mean old dad that doesn't want them to have any fun. The thing is, they're is a greater good that I'm trying to raise them towards that I feel is eventually more important than the temporary fun that they could have. And I want them to have fun. I want them to be able to enjoy things. But there are some things that I think are more important than that. If they can learn the value of honesty and integrity and how serious it is when you break trust if they will eventually, that sinks in when they're grown in life, then I will forego a lot of fun things for them now if it will eventually lead to that. But young kids can't really see further than what's in front of them. And so they can't see the wisdom in that. They can't see the love in that. All they see is that 
they're in a bad situation. And that's the same way we tend to relate to God. Many people assume that if God is ultimately responsible for every event in life, then he doesn't really care if we are sad or hurting or suffering. But nothing can be further from the truth. And it's a very immature way of viewing God. Because in his word he tells us that he hurts when we hurt. That he grieves when we grieve. But there's a greater good that he is working in us. That we may not be able to see at the moment. But we've got to be able to trust that he does. And we will eventually see it. And when we do, we will know that what he allowed in our lives at that moment was a gracious gift. We all suffer. Some of you are going through some suffering right now. And if you're not, you soon will. I mean, that is the deserved lot of humanity in a world that has been shattered by sin. And so it would do us good then to develop a good, solid theology on suffering before that dark night comes. You don't wait until you're choking to learn the Heimlich maneuver. Neither should we wait until we are in the throes of tragedy before learning the reason behind it and the response we should have to it. And so this morning, I want to leave you with seven thoughts on suffering for you to chew on. Some of you may be able to use this right now. If you're not going through it, hang on to this. And let these truths sink in so that you'll be ready when that time comes. Number one, and we weren't able to publish these in the bulletin this morning, but it will all be up on the screen for those of you who like to write down notes. Number one, God is entirely sovereign over all suffering. It will not do just to say that God uses suffering but doesn't design it. What God allows, he allows for a great purpose. Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things after the counsel of his will. All things. And listen, I'm not discounting the fact that there is an enemy in this world whose only goal for you is to steal, kill, and destroy. And he is relentless at his attempts of achieving that in your life. But even if Satan is behind your suffering, as was the case with Job, God's hand is still involved there. Satan was able to cause Job's suffering only because God allowed him to. And even then, he put boundaries on how far Satan was able to take it. It's not that suffering either comes from God or comes from Satan. It's not either or. God's hand is always involved. And here's the deal. That may be hard for some of you to accept right now. But the truth is, the more you get to know him, the more that truth right there becomes one of the warmest blankets of security that you can have in life. To know that he is involved in everything. Number two, all suffering ultimately exists for God's glory. Notice what Paul says twice there in verse 29. 
It says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It all exists so that God may be glorified in your life. And again, if you suffering the loss of something eventually brings more glory to God than you being content in whatever it is you have, then God's going to forego that contentment so that he will get more glory in your life. Number three, God's aim in your suffering, among other good things, is to knock props out from under your heart so that you rely entirely on him. When you encounter suffering and hardship, it undoubtedly causes things in your heart to rise to the surface. And God is using that suffering to expose things in your heart that he wants to remove in order to, to form you more into the image of his son. You've probably heard the saying that whatever you're filled up with is what spills over whenever you get bumped. And that's pretty true. And this goes hand, with the, hand in hand with the next one. Number four, God's design is to wean you off of the world and feast you on the sufficiency of Christ. Wean you off the world and feast you on him. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And God may allow things to happen or bring things into your life so that you can actually see that and know it be as true as it is. I love this quote from J.I. Packer. He says, still he seeks the fellowship of his people and sends them both sorrows and joys to detach their love from other things and attach it to himself. Which is greater? You being completely satisfied in Christ alone Are you being completely content having your identity tied to your job, your achievements, or your possessions? It's greater to be fully satisfied in Christ. And so what if God allows you to suffer the loss of those things? So that you will eventually come to a place where you are fully satisfied in him. Would that be okay? Some of you are like, "Uh, I don't know about that. (laughs) It's worth it. I promise you. And if it does result in that outcome, then you would be able to eventually say that the suffering that came was a gracious gift from God. Write this down. It goes along with number four. Suffering in the life of a Christian is an opportunity to show the world that Christ is worth more than life itself. He is worth more than life itself. Because when we suffer the loss of the things of this world, we don't fall apart. We don't lose our faith because we know there is something more valuable that we can never ever lose never number five 
The proper response to suffering is faith and even joy. Rather than growing in anxiety and worry, we should be growing in trust. Rather than growing in despair, we should be growing in joy. Romans 5, 3 through 5 says this. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Fill in the blank in this verse, James 1, 2. Consider it all what when you encounter various trials? Joy. Consider it all joy. Now, believe me, I know that that is a whole lot easier said and read than done. And when you are going through a trial, when you're in the middle of suffering, the last thing that you want to hear from someone is how you should be full of joy in the middle of that. You don't want to hear that. But the more that you are able to trust God, the more you'll eventually be able to experience joy. No matter what circumstance you find yourself in. Number six, suffering points us to the hope that we have in Christ. It reminds us that a day is coming very soon. A day that will have not one trace of any suffering at all. Forever. The suffering that we encounter in this world, no matter how long it lasts, is but a vapor, a nanosecond compared to what God has in store for us. Revelation 21, 3 through 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And then lastly, number seven. God is a good father. He is a good father. No matter what we go through, we have to keep reminding ourselves of that truth because Satan would want nothing more for you to believe otherwise. And he will try to use the suffering and the hardship that comes in your life to try to convince you that God is not a good father. If you keep pursuing him and absorbing yourselves in the truths of who Jesus is, what he has done, and what that means for you, then you will eventually come to that place where you will see him as good in everything that you encounter, everything that you go through. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And he wants to bring you to that place where you know him enough to be able to say, When there's no more money in the bank account, that God is good. To know him enough that when the news from the doctor comes that you had been dreading to hear, that you can say he is good. That when your body's falling apart and the doctors say they've run out of options, You can stand there and say, God is good. 
when you ever stand over the grave of your own child and you can stand there and declare he is good and his love endures forever. He wants you to know him like that. That's exactly why Paul would go on to say later in Philippians that the ultimate goal of life is to know him. I'm going to close by reading that text. Philippians 3, 7 through 11. It's probably my favorite text in the whole Bible. He says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view or compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And all of that is for this one goal here at the beginning of verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. God is good. No good thing does he hold back from those who love him. He wants you to know him, and he wants you to trust him. There's no sweeter place to be than to be able to trust your Father. Let's pray. God, I know this is not one of those messages where we leave here just all happy and God excited. It, it is a hard truth to take, but it's, it's a good truth. Lord, I pray that right now that we would all see how good you really are. Lord, that we would be able to trust you with the things that we cannot see. The things that are so far beyond the situation that we find ourselves in. God, I pray for those that may be right in the midst of that dark night right now. Who wonder where you are, God, that they would know that you are right there with them closer than you've ever been in their life. Lord, I pray that they would find you there and to be able to know you as a good father. Lord, I know those of us who are not going through that right now, eventually we will. So Lord, I pray that you would sink these truths deep down into our hearts that when we get there, we won't be shaken. But we will stand firm and secure on who you are and what you have done for us and the fact that you are in control and your ways are good and your timing is perfect.
Lord, bring us to a higher level of maturity, a higher level of trusting you, to be overwhelmed by the love of a good father. Holy Spirit, would you come and have your way in the remainder of this time? Lord, change us in ways that only you can change us. Lord, let us see our salvation for what it really was, how hopeless and how dead we were. What an incredible thing you did to save us, that we may be able to properly worship you the way that you deserve to be worshiped. We love you. We thank you for truth this morning. I ask you to help us to walk in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.